questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Do we live in a simulated universe? Do multiple versions of ourselves exist in parallel universes, living out their lives in different timelines? An MIT computer scientist and Silicon Valley game pioneer explores these topics from a new lens, that of simulation theory. If we are living in a simulated universe composed of information that is rendered around us, then many of the complexities and baffling characteristics of our reality start to make more sense. In particular, the two most popular interpretations of quantum mechanics, the Copenhagen interpretation and the many worlds interpretation, which are thought to be mutually exclusive, can be unified in an information-based framework. Quantum computing lets us simulate complex phenomena in parallel, allowing the simulation to explore many realities at once to find the most quote-unquote optimum path forward. Could this explain not only the enigmatic Mandela effect, but provide us with a new understanding of time and space? Bring in his unique trademark style of combining video games, computer science, quantum physics, and computing with lots of philosophy and science fiction. Our special guest will share a new way to think about not just our universe, but all possible timelines in the multiverse. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, Rebounders, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Rizwan Verk is a successful entrepreneur, venture capitalist, video game pioneer, best-selling author, and indie film producer. Riz writes on the intersection of science, science fiction, business, and spirituality. His startups, articles, and books have been featured in TechCrunch, Inc., Vox.com, The Boston Globe, NBC News, Coast to Coast AM, and even The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Riz received a bachelor's degree in computer science and engineering from the MIT and a master's degree in management from Stanford's Graduate School of Business. His latest book is titled The Simulated Multiverse. An MIT computer scientist explores parallel universes, the simulation hypothesis, quantum computing, and the Mandela effects. His website is zenentrepreneur.com. Here's one work joins us from Tempe, Arizona. Hello, Riz, and welcome to Veritas. Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm doing well. Well, Riz, I've been trying to interview you for quite some time, and I'm glad you're here. But before we begin, let me say that I remember playing a computer video game back in 1989 called SimCity. And even back then, the thought of us living in a video game or a simulated reality came to mind. What if our lives are mostly scripted and everything that happens around us is part of a carefully orchestrated script or a computer code? Back then, when I mentioned it to others, they simply said that I was reading too much science fiction and laughed at me. I know this is still French 
to many, but this notion is supported by many scientists, philosophers, and even religious scholars, right? Yeah, well, like you, you know, I played video games back in the day, uh, going all the way back to the 80s, uh, when I had uh, an Atari system where we had our joysticks and we were playing these, uh, you know, classic games like uh, Pac-Man or Space Invaders. Yep. And, you know, there was a game called Pole Position, which was a racing game. And I remember thinking, even as a kid, as I watched the car go around the track, I'd see these people in the bleachers and I'd see some mountains off in the distance. And I'd always wonder what was beyond the mountains. Was there a virtual world, you know, inside this video game? And of course, I didn't know enough about computers or how they worked back then to really ask that as a serious question. And, you know, the quality of graphics back in the 80s were, you know, 8-bit, maybe 16-bit towards the end of the 80s. They were so bad that no one would take that question seriously. But, you know, even in the 80s, there were science fiction depictions with the holodeck uh, on Star Trek The Next Generation, for example. And so I think over the years, as our video game technology has gotten better, uh, that question has become, you know, less and less strange and less and less purely science fiction. I mean, it turns out the tools that are used to build uh, video games are the exact same tools and techniques that are used in special effects in movies. And so we can get very good resolution today uh, for a digital object to the point where if you're watching a movie like Blade Runner you know, 2049 or one of the Star Wars films, you might not know where the CGI ends and the physical thing is there. And so, you know, I think that has been one of the main factors in causing this to be less of a fringe topic, perhaps, than it was in the past, uh, because we can see that our video games, characters, uh, storylines, scenery are getting more and more realistic. Um, and even in 1999, which was the year that The Matrix came out, uh, and this topic got you know, certainly some attention, even back then, most people wouldn't take the idea seriously, and they'd say it's just science fiction. And so that's you know one of the things that has has caused it to be taken more seriously now. I actually got involved in more seriously back in 2016 when I was playing a virtual reality ping pong game. And while I was playing the game, uh, the responses felt so real in terms of when I would hit the ball and how I had to move my arm. Uh, even though the graphics weren't that great, uh, the responsiveness was, was right on. So you could say the physics engine of that game was actually quite like our physics engine in, in what we call the physical world. And for a moment, I forgot I was playing a video game. I thought I was really playing table tennis. And I try, instinctively tried to put the paddle down on the table. And I tried to lean against the table. And of course, there was no table. <laughs> it was just virtual. And so that's when I began to, to, to think about you know, how long would it take us to get to what I call the simulation point, the point at which we would be able to create simulations which are indistinguishable from physical reality. And so by then, I, you know, certain, you know, key figures like uh, Elon Musk or Nick Bostrom, who I can talk about in a minute, uh, you know, had already given this idea a little more, uh, a little more credibility. So it was at least being discussed within a academia uh, and by physicists and certainly in Silicon Valley, which is where I was, it was being discussed you know, even more so. You've been involved in the video game industry and, and owned and sold a number of, of companies. Was your involvement in the video game industry the inspiration behind your books? Well, it was part of the inspiration um, because, you know, I was involved in creating video games, particularly when the iPhone came out. Uh, and uh, the games we made were you know, relatively primitive compared to what the iPhones of today can do. Uh, but yet you, know, you can still build these little worlds inside the game. 
And so when we sold uh, our company, I ended up becoming an investor in a number of different uh, video game startups, including companies like Discord, Telltale Games, which made games based on Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead, which were really popular, uh, as well as some virtual – I ran a, a virtual reality uh, and augmented reality startup accelerator at MIT called Play Labs, uh, which was at the MIT Media Lab. And so it was during that time that really I started to think more about the technological basis uh, of, of what – the simulation point would really look like. And so I took basic video games, starting with uh, text adventure games back in the 1970s, like Colossal Cave Adventure or Zork, one, two, three in the 80s, as well as these old arcade games, uh, and brought them forward. Uh, and, and that brought us to stage three or four or five out of uh, 10 stages that I laid out. And so it was, it was partly from projecting forward and trying to figure out, you know, what are the things that people in Silicon Valley will be investing in and how will virtual reality look in 15, 20 years, uh, in 30 years, how about in 50 years? Um, and that was part of the inspiration for the book. The other inspiration was just that, you know, I had spent sort of a double life, you know, while I was an entrepreneur in, in the software and video game industries and investor, I had also explored a lot of different uh, states of consciousness, a lot of different practices ranging from lucid dreaming to Tibetan dream yoga to shamanic journeying. And, you know, so I had spent a lot of time with people in, in that world, uh, as well as investigating things like UFOs. Uh, and so the simulation hypothesis gave me this ability to kind of link my day-to-day -day work, which is about technology, uh, as well as some of the time I spent with scientists uh, and academic institutions with kind of the states of consciousness, traditional religion, as well as non-traditional explorations. And I found that the simulation hypothesis was one of the few metaphors that could be a common language, you know, that was spoken uh, between these sides. I mean, 500 years ago, you had re religion in charge in the West, and Galileo got in trouble for, you know, saying that uh, the Earth may not be the center of the universe or uh, by asking people to look at the telescopes. Uh, using the Copernican model. And so back then, you know, there was this underground group of people who uh, were pushing science. And now we've gone the other way. We've gone where science has become the mainstream dominant paradigm. And they tend to uh, uh, put down the, the consciousness and the religious side of things. Uh, and so they, these, these two sides don't always talk to each other. Uh, and so that, that was one of my other inspirations for really getting involved within simulation theory in general. I want to come back to what you just said, because I think science has become dogmatic in a way. But I remember going from Pong to Atari to where we are today. Now we have virtual reality like Oculus, the metaverse, movies like Ready Player One. How lost are we in the illusion? How close is humanity to merging with a virtual world that is not real. But well, you know, as I said, I laid out these these 10 stages and we're about halfway there. And so as our virtual reality gets more photorealistic, as our augmented reality can show objects to us that are not really there, we start to see this convergence between the digital and the physical world. And what 3D printers are showing us is that you can represent pretty much any object with information. Uh, and to use another Star Trek metaphor, I, I brought up the holodeck earlier, 
the other, you know, interesting, one of the other interesting pieces of technology within Star Trek is the replicator. You know, when uh, Captain Picard says, you know, tea, you're all very hot, it'll basically manufacture the cup and the coffee or the tea that goes inside. And so today's 3D printers, you know, usually only use one material, but there are already people experimenting with uh, biological 3D printers, and who knows soon we'll have with liquids as well. Uh, there are, are, are now companies and research groups that can use human cells uh, to 3D print, uh, you know, pieces of skin, for example, for skin grafts and all these types of things. And so we're seeing it get more and more sophisticated. Um, uh, but then really, I think, you know, once we get to the stage of brain-computer interfaces, uh, or BCIs, as they're called, that's when we get much closer you know, to merging the physical reality with the virtual reality. And today, everyone's talking about the metaverse, uh, including you know Facebook having changed its name. Uh, Zuckerberg announced, uh, as most people have heard by now, they changed its name to Meta because they wanted to be one of the key players in the metaverse. And so, you know, the roadmap for the metaverse turns out is actually very similar to the road to the simulation point that I described. Uh, and in uh, the Matrix, uh, you'll remember that the Neo and Morpheus and Trinity, they were all plugged in to the Matrix with this wire into the back of the head. And so that's an example of a brain-computer interface. And there are companies now that are creating BCIs, including Elon Musk's Neuralink, uh, and a bunch of others, and many of them are non-invasive, so they just try to read the electrical signals coming out of the brain, as opposed to you know, requiring this cable that connects it. But there was actually a, a demo recently um, that Elon Musk did where they showed a monkey, and they taught the monkey to play a video game. Which game was it? It was Pong, right? As you mentioned, which was the first widely available video game. For some reason, ping pong keeps coming up, you know, as we talk about this topic. Uh, and so the monkey learned to play with a joystick, and then they disconnected the joystick. And so the monkey thought it was still playing with a joystick, but they were reading the brain signals from the monkey's brain, and they could figure out when it wanted to go left or right or up and down, you know, for for playing this virtual ping pong game. And and so that was showing that you know, they, we've got the ability to read. We don't know yet how to send signals into the brain, but so that's a very big part uh, of the stages before we would get to. Uh, build something like uh, the Matrix, but you know, I wrote a, a an essay for Scientific American earlier this year saying the metaverse is coming. But we may already be in it, um, and so you know, from the point of view of merging with 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 the metaverse in our own virtual reality, I'd say we're still a few decades away, uh, and, and you know, at the most, a hundred years out to this theoretical point I call the simulation point. The other thing is AI residents or AI characters within the metaverse. Uh, and so those are just starting to come online. You may have heard about the uh, the chatbot recently that a Google engineer said it thought that it was Sentient. conscious or it certainly seemed that way. Right? It was called Lambda. Yep. Um, and so that was big news recently. And so we're getting closer and closer to having characters, virtual characters that you can have conversations with. There's there's a, a chatbot called Kooky, which was uh, part of the original inspiration for the movie Her. I don't know if you saw that, that sure. movie. Uh, where the guy has a relationship with uh, Scarlett Johansson's voice. Joaquin <laughs> uh, Phoenix was the, the actor, right? Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, Joaquin Phoenix. That's, yeah. that's right. Um, and so so the, the, the guy who made the, that film, he was inspired by the chatbot, which has now become kooky, which is not just a chatbot, but it has an actual character, a visual you know, avatar, and you can interact with it. And 
you know, I actually interviewed Kuki on a podcast that I did for my podcast simulated uh, universe uh, last year, but, and I posted the video up on YouTube somewhere, but it's interesting to think, you know, we're getting closer and closer to all of these stages. And eventually we'd get to the stage that's depicted in shows like Up- upload uh, and others where you can download your silicon consciousness. I mean, your, 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 your consciousness into silicon so that you could basically become a resident of the metaverse and we're kind of getting into you know kind of strange philosophical questions about digital afterlife versus biological afterlife and these types of things but you know most scientists believe we're not that far off from meeting any of these individual stages i personally think we're at least you know at least a few decades if not uh maybe 100 years maybe 200 years at the most but that's not very much time in the cosmic scale of things it was interesting that when we were playing virtual table tennis you actually in- instinctively put the quote-unquote paddle down onto the quote-unquote table and attempted to lean on the table just like you might have done after a real table. So the the, the kind of immersion and, and the fooling the mind is just incredible. But you mentioned Black Mirror, for example. You mentioned Black Mirror in, in your book, and we'll discuss it later, but just one of the episodes came to mind that you don't discuss in your book. But I don't know if you remember, I forgot the actual title of the episode, but it was a woman who lost her husband, an accident or something happened to him. And a company was able to manufacture a clone of his, of the husband based on the social media life that he had. So when she received the package, she saw the face, he looked much younger, no wrinkles. And they said, well, it's because, you know, people usually, you know, use filters. You remember that episode? You know, I didn't see the episode, but it's very much based on uh, this idea of a digital afterlife. Exactly. And there are there was a, there was a woman in Russia who you know she had a friend who died, and she created a chatbot based upon you know all of the social media posts from that person. And then there was another one. I forget the name of it now. I think it was called like Virtual Dad or something like that, where some guy did that for his father, and it was a chatbot that was out there, and it got a lot of attention a few years ago. And so we're already seeing the beginnings of that, which is that because we produce more information uh, through our lives now that's digitized than ever before, that information is available to train uh, an AI that might look and sound like you. I mean, most people have heard of deep fakes now where you you can have uh, an image generated by AI uh, that starts to look very realistic. And generally speaking, if you just see the picture, it's hard to tell now. They've gotten so good. If you look at uh, like Epic, uh, which is the parent company of Fortnite, they have metahumans. But it's gotten to the point where if you just look at a static image, it's almost diff- you know it's almost difficult to distinguish between a virtual character and a real character. And there are virtual characters now that have millions of followers, millions of followers on YouTube and Instagram and other places like that. And so we're seeing this technology advance. Uh, and and of course, if you take it to its logical conclusion. Um, you know, it's that one, you would be able to upload that consciousness. And and some people think that it's a, it's just a matter of being able to map all the neurons in the brain and the connections between those neurons, which that's what's called the connectome. And so if they can do that, they can go further than just the social media posts or the pictures that have been out there. They can actually, you know, basically get the memories and everything that's in there. That's a controversial area, right? Because that assumes that consciousness is simply uh, an emergent property of the physical neurons and the connections, uh, and and so you know there's a 
there's a debate within simulation theory, and and actually not that many people talk about this, but I think it's actually one of the most important aspects of simulation theory, and it's what what I call the NPC versus the RPG versions or flavors, perhaps is a better word, of the simulation hypothesis. Um, and in the NPC version, we're all simulated on a computer, and we're all like the NPCs, the non-player characters in video games. Like you know, you may have a bartender at a bar, or a bank teller, or just random people wandering around that are just AI. And so, you know, when most academics talk about simulation theory, they're talking about that version. But there is the other version, which is the virtual reality version, which is RPG, which is a role-playing game version where our characters are avatars, just in the same way when I play Fortnite or I play World of Warcraft or No Man's Sky or League of Legends, I have my avatar uh, inside the game. But I'm not the avatar. I'm still outside the game. But from the perspective of what's inside the game, that's all I see. And the Matrix actually was closer to the RPG version. Yeah, there were some AIs like Agent Smith and some of the other programs, but primarily it was about immersing yourself completely in there. And so that gets back to this question of, you know, can you have consciousness uh, simply from the physical body, which would mean basically having an avatar or, or what, what, what I like to call avies, AI avatars in, in the metaverse. And, and if you reproduce like that, that woman in the Black Mirror episode, I'll have to watch it now. <laughs> Uh, that, that, you know, who brought back her husband. And of course, in that episode, did she actually, was it a virtual or a physical? It was a physical, physical, but the, the actual, whatever his memories, consciousness was, was based on his Facebook, let's call it Facebook uh, life that he had. They accumulated all the pictures, all, everything he said throughout, you know, the years he had been on social media. And they basically put it all into him, his, his, his image uh, the way he talks, everything. I mean, th- some of these episodes, I just wonder if somebody's stepping into something else. I mean, you remember, you may remember another episode where an individual has something in his chip implanted that records everything. So when he goes to the airport, at the airport, they want to see security. They want to see the last, you remember that episode? It's yeah, just I incredible stuff. Yeah, everything is just recorded. And then, you know, there's a couple and, you know, they've recorded what they were doing exactly. earlier in the night. And yep. they're, they're arguing, why were you talking to this? Why were you doing this? It's almost like where we don't want full recall. Uh, exactly. But yeah, Black Mirror is great because it raises these issues, not just about the technology, but really about the social dimensions of this technology and what impact you know, could it have uh, on individuals and on society and our, and our relationships. I wanted to ask you this question at the end, but you brought up the NPC and RPG are we in an NPC role right now or an RPG version of the simulation? Well, that's the, the big, you know, $64 million question right? <laughs> uh, that, you know, science is struggling with and hasn't quite figured out. Um, if you look at the, uh, the simulation hypothesis as it's talked about by a lot of academics, uh, it was uh, put forward by uh, a philosopher uh, from Oxford named Nick Bostrom. And he wrote a paper all the way back in 2003 uh, called Are You Living in a Computer Simulation? And, you know, it ties a little bit to the earlier discussion that we had uh, and my, my thoughts on when we'll reach the simulation point. And so, you know, he came up with uh, this uh, idea that really there were three possibilities for technological civilization. One, it never reaches that point, which means it can't create a bunch of simulations. 
Or two, it reaches the point and it decides not to create any simulations by law or something. Um, or three, it reaches the point and it creates lots and lots of simulations. And so his argument was that if if three is true, in any case, anywhere in the physical universe, let's say in the galaxy, you could be talking about a civilization that's a thousand years or 10,000 years or a million years more advanced than we are, right? And so if they're able to create these simulations, they would create lots of them. All you have to do is crank up another server and you've got another billion people, another trillion people in a billion different simulations. Uh, and so he came to the conclusion that says, if it's possible, then you are most likely living in a simulation. Why? Because there's only so many people in base reality, and there's only one base reality, but there's a huge number of people that are simulated, or AI or NPCs in this case, uh, and there's a huge number of simulated worlds. And so if you just had to do the probability that says, okay, you're in a world, there's only one of these, there's a lot of these, which are you in, or you're a being, and there's so many simulated beings, but there's you know, a, a million times more, uh, there's so many physical beings, there's a million times more simulated beings, which are you more likely to be? And so his was a probability-based argument. And so when a lot of people talk about the simulation hypothesis, they're talking about that specific simulation argument that Bostrom made, which is that we're more, and, and Elon Musk a few years ago also talked about video games going back to Pong and how we're, where we are today. And he came to the conclusion that the chance that we are in base reality i.e. that we're not in a simulation, is one in billions, right? which means it's pretty likely we're in a simulation, and that was based on that logic. But that logic does very much rely on there being lots and lots of NPCs. Now, personally, I, I'd like to point out that these two are not mutually exclusive. Right? When you play an online game, uh, whatever it is, EVE Online, you know, any of these games, uh, you have your avatar, and then you have the NPCs in there. So you actually have both within that environment. Personally, I tend to favor us the RPG version, which says that we are the players. We are outside the game, and we have put on the quote-unquote virtual reality helmet, and we have just forgotten uh, what it was like outside the game. And there's a there's a great you know Rick and Morty episode uh, about that where. You know, the game is called something like, you know, Life Well Lived or something like that. And the guy puts on the VR headset. And in there, he lives an entire life from being born, going to school, getting married, having kids, getting old, and then dying. And, and you know, when he dies, he put, takes off the helmet. And it's only been 15 minutes. But to him, it's been a whole life. He's like, wait, where's my wife? Where's my kids? What's going on? Why am I here? <laughs> and I think it's a little bit closer to that. And that's what many of the religions have been telling us all along that this physical world around us, you know, is not the real world. But you just said again, you're saying things, and it just reminds me of things that I've seen in the past. You may remember the movie Strange Days. Do you remember that? You know, I don't think I saw that one. I remember I heard about it. Strange Days. I wanted to bring this up later because I think that if virtual reality becomes so equal and so immersive, it could become an addiction. And that's what that movie showed basically people instead of going to the you know the corner drug dealer they would go to the corner person selling virtual reality that you could put into this you know things you could connect to your to your head and you would experience anything you wanted whether it was sex whether it was going on vacation to a place you never thought you could go to you name it but it became an addiction but also you mentioned the deep fakes since you were in the belly of the silicon valley area 
Do you remember the presentation that Adobe made years ago about Project Voco? Project Voco? I heard of it. I, I don't remember seeing the presentation, but I remember hearing about it. Project Voco, they would take the speech of someone and clone it to allow you to change their words and even add new phrases. But there were legal concerns and even the national security apparatus stepped in and said, nope, you cannot release it. So they immediately, abruptly stopped it. But what I saw in that presentation was scary because they could actually, you know, use your voice. And now we have deep fakes. Imagine if they create a video of you doing something you shouldn't be doing. Imagine the legal yeah, ramifications. Absolutely. And the, the, the voice technology is now out there. Like there's a number of companies uh, that basically clone your voice. Uh, and you, you basically speak, you know, 50 sentences, right? And then you can use that. Uh, they can use that to generate. Now it's not perfect because you have to like tweak it. But if you trained it with mo way more than just the 50 sentences, if you trained it on a larger set, like uh, there was a group at at ASU actually that they had a video they wanted to be narrated by uh, I forget who it was. Maybe it was uh, Sir Richard Attenborough or, or it was it was one of these uh, well-known individuals from the past who had passed away, and they were able to using the clips that were available of him. Uh, to clone his voice uh, and then use it uh, for the video. Now, the video wasn't sort of him there, so they haven't married it yet with the deep fakes. But, yeah, it's getting to the point where I think you give it a, you know, a decade, certainly five years to a decade, the deep fakes will get very good. I mean, today, there's still that uncanny valley, they call it, um, which is that, you know, you can start off with very simple you know, 2D avatars that look nothing like humans, and the closer you get to looking like human, the, the more odd it seems to people because they know something's wrong. <laughs> and they can't quite figure out what, but it just doesn't feel right. And so there's this point at which if you try to get too close and too realistic, it brings up this uncanny valley. And today, even though the deep fakes are good for pictures, like they're not so good for moving of movements like talking and for moving around. You can kind of tell something's off. Right, but with more data and more training, this will get you know better and better. And just like we have these characters inside movies, you know, whether it's Gollum going back to the Lord of the Rings all the way back in two thousand, is it two thousand two or three that the second movie came out? Um, that 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 they had you know this virtual character, uh, and and so you're seeing more and more of those. And there are now, um, there are now uh, tools that like if I sit in front of my zoom call i can move my arms and do things and then they'll it'll show an avatar to the other side that's not me but it's doing the exact same things i'm doing and even roblox and others are working on this kind of technology and so it'll get to the point where we will be able to do that but i did want to talk about the addiction thing you mentioned because i think that's that's a really important issue um, even though i hadn't seen that movie uh there's you know a well-known book about the metaverse called ready player one uh, in which everybody goes to school in the Oasis, which is like their sort of metaverse. And people work in the metaverse. That's where they get jobs. But it's relying on these uh, very uh, slim virtual reality goggles, unlike the ones we have today, which are still pretty big. Uh, so he wrote that back in 2010, 2011. And uh, in the book, I think it was like 2045 was the year. But we already almost caught up to what he depicted in terms of technical ability. So then he came out with a new book. Uh, the movie for Ready Player One came out in 2018, directed by Steven Spielberg. But then uh, Ernest Klein, who wrote the original book, wrote Ready Player Two 
in 2020. And in that, they upgraded the metaverse so you didn't need the goggles, but it was a brain interface where you just kind of put this little band on your head and it projects, you know, right into the brain. And in that, you know, one of the, the main issues was just like in the movie you talked about is, well, if you can experience it, it actually feels real because in that case, they're sending impulses, electrical impulses into the brain. Uh, you could basically go to India without having to have, you know, uh, the issues you might have with the food or you could travel or have, like you said, have any kind of sexual experience you wanted to and it would feel real. And, you know, Philip K. Dick got into a lot of these, these types of scenarios with uh, Total Recall and others. Uh, and, and so the question was, will people just give up on going out in the real world? Uh, I think it's an open question, but I do think there is the possibility of that. That said, I think we're, we're, we're still a bit away from being able to do that. Uh, I mean, the, even the goggles are cumbersome and we don't have any kind of haptic stuff. I mean, we have their haptic gloves and suits, but they're very cumbersome right now to, to wear. But give it a decade or two. Uh, and then if you, if you can send electro impulses, which reminds me of that scene in the Matrix where Morpheus, who's named after the Greek god of dreams, is asked by Neo, uh, is this real? Because right? he put him, took him out of the Matrix and put him in another simulation. Uh, and he goes, well, what is real? Reality is a series of electrical impulses to your brain. So from that perspective, it seems real. Well, you've probably seen some of these holograms of Tupac Shakur or Michael Jackson. If they mix deepfakes in the future and it becomes perfected, because like I said, this Project Voco, I saw it, and it was just 100% realistic. If you could combine those three things, I wonder how many people, you know, that the nostalgia of the 1970s or 80s, what if they say, hey, we have a new concert, new material. Yeah, it's not from Freddie Mercury, but it's the same voice and it's the same thing, but it's new material. Imagine the industry they could create by bringing Michael Jackson, Freddie Mercury, David Bowie, and the rest of them. Yeah, and that industry is, I mean, it's in its infancy, but it, it, it's already starting to form. I mean, there are issues around digital rights from the estates of actors and singers huh. for their voice and their image. I mean, we already see Lucasfilm, right? Bringing Leia. Back Princess Leia. Yeah. Right? Yeah, Carrie Fisher, who passed away. And, you know, it's still a bit awkward. But there, there is now a whole, you know, element of this from the, uh, the agents to the industry and licensing and who pays for those voices. Uh, and it, I think the consensus is if it's the voice based on the original actor, then they should still be getting a piece of it. But these are open legal issues to this virtual reality world that, you know, are going to be interesting over the next decade or two. Even Peter Cushing, who's dead, has been dead since 1994, they brought him back and it looked pretty good. That's right. That's right. Grand Moff Tarkin. From exactly. Star Wars, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they actually look pretty good. Each each movie, you know, they get better at it. And, and, and you know, this whole process partly partly started with, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg and Jurassic Park you know, back in the early 90s. When uh, before that, they pretty much used physical puppets for these kinds of special effects, and that was the first time. I mean, he almost didn't believe it at first, and then you know, the guys at back to Lucasfilm, I think it was ILM that did the. Uh, special effects, you know, they showed him they could create dinosaurs that looked somewhat realistic with computers, and, and that, that trend has just continued. <laughs> and and now, you know, it, it, it'll reach the point where, obviously for that, you needed, like, you know, these big rendering machines, but now it's getting to the point where our desktop renderings are becoming pretty good. <laughs> so, yeah, it'll be very difficult to distinguish in the future. Speaking of the addiction, 
Most people who abuse drugs or alcohol, they're not only addicted to the substance, but also to escapism. Escapism is a tendency to seek escape and distraction from reality or life, real life problems. Your thoughts on this? Well, yeah, I mean, I think escapism is definitely there. Um, but I think, you know, for some of us uh, you know, who grew up uh, before computers and then with video games, but only, you know, sort of the primitive video games, uh, you know, the distinction between escaping versus dealing with real life was much, I think, more distinct than it is with today's generation. <laughs> I mean, uh, the younger generation today spends you know, as much time in online environments as they do probably out in the real world. And so, you know, for them, like there was a, a survey done recently, which said like uh, they surveyed Gen Zers and they found that over 50% of them were, were just as likely or more likely to spend money on a, a virtual clothes and sneakers and outfits for their avatars, you know, in Roblox or Fortnite or one of these environments than they were as they were to actually spend on buying, you know, real world Nikes. Right? Wow. <laughs> and so this is that generation for whom, and not just because of COVID, I mean, even before COVID, I mean, you have hundreds of millions, uh, if not billions of people playing online games. And, you know, Fortnite has become like a, a socializing place. So you go there and you hang out with your friends within that environment. And um, certainly with COVID, it even accelerated where they're spending more and more time excuse me, online through Zoom and others. So, I mean, I, I, I do believe there is this element of escapism. Uh, and But I think that uh, also, you know, as our digital and physical lives get closer and closer together, you know, that distinction may not be so big. Like the people that we're interacting in the virtual world might be our, our, our coworkers, right, in the future. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, in, in some cases, escapism is bad because you're ignoring stuff in the other, in another case, you're building, you know, a more distributed virtual life. I, I spent a lot of time in a, a virtual world called Second Life back in 2007, 2007 and 2008. And it was pretty big back then. It was kind of Metaverse 1.0 is what I like to call it. Whereas what we're trying to build today is kind of like Metaverse 2.0. And, you know, I would come across people that uh, were disabled, for example, and couldn't go out very much. And they would use this as an escape. So there's a positive side to escape as well as a negative side, you know, to the escape. But, but, but I wonder if that's, you know, uh, a distinction that won't be there in another generation. This is what concerns me about this, because you and I grew up at a time where we knew, we knew that playing video games was just a distraction, you know, of, you know it's like going to play baseball. But as you say, the, the newer generations are spending so much time, and even you probably have heard of the avatar depression syndrome. These are people who report a suicidal feelings after seeing the movie Avatar because they miss the beauty of its hyper-realistic world. Do you think that this metaverse may push people into that? It's possible, right? Because, uh, you know, like I mentioned that <laughs> that book, Ready Player Two, where they had uh, you know, the brain-computer interface. And, and so within that, they had to limit how much time you could spend per day, like nine hours or 12 hours, right? Because if you spent more than that, your brain would become confused. And I mean, I think our, our physical body is, is, is used to being in a physical environment and our brains have evolved uh, within that environment. So, you know, I, I do think that from, from that perspective, 
it could get problematic. Um, but you know, you see that with social media already, where you know there are like more teenagers depressed now than there ever were before, <laughs> and with all these studies. And part of it is because they spend so much time online. But it's not just being online. It's on social media. They're always comparing themselves to other people, yeah. right? And and if you notice what I mean, I have friends today that are traveling in this, you know, in Venice and London and Scotland, <laughs> right? Just on Facebook, and I'm like, oh well, I, you know, I'm just you know hanging out here, going to classes uh, for my PhD, <laughs> and you can see how it would kind of build up to a weird kind of you know the grass is always greener somewhere else, and, and you can see that being transported in, into the virtual world as well. But I think. We'll get some kind of a balance as well. Uh, like, for example, I, I was in a class, and so, uh, you know, with undergrads, so there were some uh, and, and graduate students, but basically mostly kids in their 20s. And one of them told me that, you know, his dad used to tell him, don't spend so much time on the iPhone, right? You're spending too much time on the iPhone when he was a kid, which was not that long ago, right? Uh, but he said, now he goes home to visit his dad. Um, and his dad is on his phone all the time <laughs> on Facebook and elsewhere. And he has to tell his father, don't spend so much time on, on, on the phone. Uh, so, you know, perhaps I, I think because this generation is growing up with it, it may be a little less, uh, you know, they may be able to deal with it better, I guess, is what I'm saying. Than well, those of us for, for whom that is such a separate thing, you know. I'm remembering what you just said that, you know, some people are studying, you're pursuing your PhD, and you may have some friends who are traveling. And that, you know, creates a little bit of animosity. But at the same time, there's a flip side of the coin. I remember last time I was in Venice, for example, I observed the gondolas around me and there was a group of what looked to be college students. And instead of looking around the beauty of Venice, they were all looking at their phones. Do you see that all the time? <laughs> yeah, you see that all the time, right? You see that. And that's why, you know, there's things like screen time. Uh, but But I have noticed that people are less able and and you know there's like teenagers have anxiety over instagram now and there have been studies done where they don't want to go to sleep because they might miss you know the latest instagram posting and so you know i i think that's a problem right? <laughs> that is definitely with not just with virtual i mean the virtual reality is not quite there yet right where you know you would want to be immersed in it all the time but we're already virtual I mean, you and i are having this conversation not in physical reality <laughs> Uh, in fact, we're not even really having a conversation. I am speaking to my computer. My voice is being translated into bits, transmitted over the wire, and your computer is re-rendering my voice. So in addition to the, the thing we talked about earlier where, you know, with software, you could basically modify what gets rendered on the other side. You could change it. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're, we're all used to having virtual interactions now, and that's become pretty common. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think we all need a, a healthy amount of time in the real, in, in the physical world. And, and so that's why I, uh, I think it's important. Um, but, you know, that said, when I was a kid, we heard the same thing about TV. Right? We yeah. were told TV would rot our brains. <laughs> and we were told that we're spending too much time on TV. And yet, you know, we were still able to go out and do all of these other things. I, I think as they start to view it more as a tool of uh, their social relationships, right? It becomes part of their social relationships. Uh, then I, I, I do think some, some people will be able to deal with it better. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think they're, we're, we're kind of on that weird cusp right now, you know, where this generation is growing up with all of these social media tools and it's social media in particular, right? And, and I think we have to think about that as we design the metaverse, uh, you know, moving to the future. 
Uh, it's one thing to be working in the metaverse. It's another to spend all your time socializing in the metaverse. Um, but, you know, most people, most of my friends now are not in uh, in this city, right? So I end up just interacting with them more on the phone and virtually than, than, than on Facebook and social media than in person these days anyway. Uh, and, and so it's just becoming, you know, part of the norm. I mean, perhaps some people thought that when telephones came out too. <laughs> we don't know. I mean, part of what I'm studying is uh, social dimensions of, of science and technology and you know there's always these unintended consequences of technology when you roll it out and you don't always know that beforehand uh and uh, you know there's always resistance to it from some some part of society and, and i i don't know this for a fact but i'm wondering if telephones which are extremely convenient right uh also ended up creating you know some of that uh, for people that prefer to be disconnected. Certainly cell phones did, right? <laughs> because you can't go anywhere without people being able to contact you. That was the first time that really happened was, was back in the 90s. But even if you look at a technology like cars, automobiles, the, the predicted consequence, the, the pollution they were worried about was that cars would kick up so much dust from the roads, right? Because the roads were not paved, right? There were horses and cars on the roads back then in the first part of the 20th century. And that was what the pollution they were worried about. And they weren't necessarily worried about fossil fuels. Uh, and so there's always an unexpected set of consequences from the technologies that, that we roll out. And that's you know, pretty much unavoidable. <laughs> well, look at DARPA. I think DARPA was devised in the 1960s more for the military to be able to communicate in the event of nuclear war. And then it was passed you know, on in the 80s to the population, in the 90s mostly for mainstream and I wonder if they ever visualize what a, a future would become for the mainstream, the, the, the population using the Internet. Do you think they imagine how it would become? I don't think that the military did. I mean, I, you know, they established DARPA as the Defense Advanced Research Project. Project agency, right. Um, yeah, agency, exactly. And so, you know, they were uh, one of the ways that they built the Internet, as you mentioned, uh, was to be able to survive a nuclear war. So they created this decentralized set of name servers. And people have probably heard DNS today, uh, like for their websites and their URLs, but that's really the origin is you have a distributed set of databases, which if any one of them goes out, you can still have that information available. And then you know, with the network as well, if any part of the network goes out, you're still able to route information back and forth. But yeah, I don't think necessarily they 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 were thinking of some of these applications, although there were people that were, right? I mean, at Xerox Park, they were thinking of networked offices. Uh, you had uh, people like Jacques Vallée, uh, who has, uh, you know, been uh, involved as a computer scientist who was involved in Project Blue Book way back in the 60s, yep. uh, and who was the inspiration for the French scientist in Close Encounters of the Third Time. Right. But he was also doing research in Silicon Valley around uh, the ARPANET, as it was called at the time, and the internet. And, you know, he was already exploring, you know, what it would mean for, for there to be so many connections and for people to have virtual meetings and things, even back in the 70s, even though really that ha didn't really happen until the 90s. Glad to see that you're also immersed in that part of the of our topics, uh, Jav Valet, Close Encounters, and so on. But you mentioned in your book, quote, studies have shown that the brain response to perceived stimuli in a virtual environment in the same way as it does to real stimuli in a physical environment, end quote. I'm sure this knowledge can be used for many applications, say therapy to overcome fear of things like heights or spiders. This can be simulated safely inside virtual reality. Is psychology 
on psychiatry embracing this today, Chris? Uh, they are starting to. There are more and more uh, studies being done uh, that show that you can use virtual reality uh, as a way, as a therapeutic tool. And that there was one at the University of Oxford recently uh, that showed that you can reduce anxiety. And there was there there were a number of startups in Silicon Valley. Uh, so there was a wave when we thought all thought virtual reality was going to be really big. It was in 2016, 2017, 2018. And there were a lot of startups. And, and uh, you know, one of them specifically was working for with heights and with spiders. And uh, there was another one that um, a friend of mine started that was for, uh, you know, teen anxiety disorder. And so, you know, many of them had clinical uh, studies that showed that this actually does work. Uh, you can reduce your fear. I mean, you're not going to get rid of the fear completely, but if you're able to uh, use this to train yourself to be in the presence of spiders or to be in, in uh, you know, at a great height, uh, it, it turns out more and more, you know, uh, universities and, and psychiatrists that are uh, that are showing this now. That doesn't mean they're rolling this out everywhere, but there are also uh, VR companies that that allow you to to relax and get into different states. Uh, whether just like you know there are apps and things on YouTube you can listen to for meditation. Uh, when you put a VR headset on, you know you can really there's like a whole biofeedback element that occurs. And you can tell if your heart rate is slowing down. I mean at at Play Labs at MIT, which I was running a few years ago, we had a company that was doing that where if you breathe in a certain way, you know objects would levitate in the virtual reality. But if you breathe too fast or your pulse got too strong. Uh, too fast, then they, they would kind of fall down. And so it was a biofeedback wow. mechanism. Uh, but within this virtual environment that kind of made it, you know, it almost seems like you're being psychic here in controlling these things, right? Uh, but it's all based on, you know, the body. Uh, and so, so yeah, there have been many studies that show that, that you can have therapeutic effects. Now, is it, uh, you know, how strong is it? That's a good question. I think we'll find out and then how quickly it gets rolled out. It may take years, uh, but within a, Within a psychiatrist's office or within a controlled environment, like a, a inside a company, it's easier to have a VR headset than necessarily at home. Although with the Quest and wireless headsets, that's becoming easier and easier as well. You mentioned a lot uh, Philip K. Dick's work in your book. What do you think he would say? He died in 1982, for those who don't know. What do you think he would say if you were alive today about the advent of so much technology? Well, you know, that's a, a good question. I mean, his, his work is, is, was quite interesting because, you know, now we, we, he's very well known because of the movies, right, that have uh, kind of extrapolated uh, on his work, you know, whether it started really with Blade Runner being the first one that, that made a huge impact. Uh, and of course, you know, we Man of the High Castle. And Man of the High Castle. And, and, you know, I can talk about that in a minute in terms of timelines and stuff. But I think that, you know, I asked, uh, I asked his wife, Tessa, who I interviewed uh, as part of our research for my book, you know, what what he would have thought of The Matrix, <laughs> for example. And she said, well, his first reaction would probably be that he liked it. And his second reaction would be, can I sue these guys <laughs> for stealing my <laughs> ideas? <laughs> and so that was pretty funny. But, you know, he had even in um, uh, the book that Blade Runner was based on, uh, uh, which was uh, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Sheep, which came out in the 1960s, I believe, uh, as did the Man in the High Castle was 1960. And in that, there was a, there was a whole element uh, called uh, the Mercer machine uh, where people would plug into this 
kind of VR like thing. And it would like, uh, they would like see some shared scene of people. Uh, and it would, it would certain colors and emotions. It, it was like a mood machine almost. Uh, and he had several other stories like that as well. So, you know, I think he, he, he predicted a lot of things, although he didn't always get it right, but he got the essence of these things and how they might blur, right? If you look at Philip K. Dick's work, the two big questions that he raises, and this is people, scholars that have studied him, and he even said this himself, uh, the two big questions that he explores is one, what does it mean to be human versus non-human? If you think of AIs, for example, Blade Runner, that was one of the, the major questions. And the second big question was what is reality and what is real and what isn't real? And, you know, he explored that in many of his works. And oftentimes there were like what he called the pseudo world. Some of them were experienced only by one person. Some of them were shared hallucinations of certain types. Uh, and so, you know, I think with the virtual reality technology, I think you'd have a field day in creating, creating new, <laughs> um, creating, you know, new stories. Part, part of my research is on something called the sci-fi feedback loop. And, you know, the basic idea is that science fiction often inspires real world inventions um and uh innovation in the real world and there's many examples from star trek you know with the flip phone and star trek in general inspiring people to go into stem uh and there's you know many other examples of, of things that have come out of uh various science fiction going back to you know the submarine from Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea uh inspiring uh, from Jules verne inspiring simon lake to build you know one of the first um, seawater submarines out there for the military. And so, so there's a long history of that. But what happens is things go in waves is that people get inspired by the science fiction. And since we've been talking about the metaverse, the metaverse term was coined in a science fiction novel by Neil Stevenson back in 1992, uh, called Snow Crash. Uh, and in that, you know, he said it was, uh, this guy Hero, who was the actual hero, but his name was spelled H-I-R-O. Um, yeah, it was basically beaming these signals to these, these weird goggles that were sitting on his face that were kind of VR or kind of AR because you could still kind of look around, uh, and you had an avatar within the metaverse. And so that book is considered kind of a classic in this world and it inspired a whole group of entrepreneurs to build MMORPG environments t such as Second Life, which came out in 2004, there.com, some in the nineties. And that led to, you know, it was pre-internet. So he envisioned the metaverse as being a kind of internet, but with 3D avatars and virtual reality. So, but there's a lot of things that developed since then. The web, for one, wasn't even around. And so the real world innovation then went back and inspired the next generation of science fiction writers. And so I mentioned Ready Player One earlier, which many would say is the successor to Snow Crash as like the metaverse book. And that incorporated all the stuff that had been built in the meantime. So you would not only have virtual reality, you had web browsers, you know, you could stream videos, you could do instant messaging, all the stuff that had been built as standard part of the internet, social media by then was incorporated. And so then that became the inspiration for people who were working on a startup called Oculus. Uh, and in fact, they bought a copy of that book, <laughs> the science fiction book for every one of their employees, uh, which was founded in 2012. And then of course, Facebook bought them. And now Facebook is trying to build this entire metaverse off of that and so you see this loop in motion. So I think if Phil K. Dick was around today, you know, his first reaction would be, wow, this is cool. I'd say it hasn't developed exactly like I thought, but it's interesting. And I think he would go and write some very interesting stories about what happens next. I, I don't know why the 
the video game from 1982, 83, uh, Dragon's Lair. Do you remember that? I remember I that. Do. I remember that game because back then every every game was a quarter, but this specific game in my arcade was a dollar. So you had to really become proficient at it. But this is when really things started changing. Almost like every single chapter had a different uh, course, if you will. That's right, and and in fact. You know, that was the first game that used like cartoon-like cutscenes, right. if I remember correctly. And so there was this distinction between the game and watching an animated video. <laughs> and and you know, video games and cartoons were completely different things, right? Cartoons were on TV uh, or or you know, theaters. Video games were things you did inside the arcade. But now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, special effects for movies uh, use the exact same 3D models in the exact same tools like the Unreal Engine from Epic or the Unity 3D engine to create these special effects. Uh, and so it's just showing this convergence. And that was one of the first games uh, where, you know, that those two can uh, really started to converge. And now if you look at the trailers for video games, I mean, they're like really high quality, yeah. trailers, even higher quality than the game itself. But you're looking at it and you're like, wow, this is like a whole production of, 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 of a movie. And there have been you know, movies based on you know, whether it's Warcraft, World of Warcraft, or, or other video games that have been translated. But yeah, I remember the, the thing with the, with, with, with the quarters. In fact, you know, there's a, a great story about Pong, which was the first widely available video game from Atari. And a guy named Nolan Bushnell had started yeah. it. And they had dropped off Pong at some local bars and pizza joints here in Sunnyvale. I was going to say here because I used to live right, right next to Sunnyvale in Mountain View, but I'm, I'm not there at the moment. And so after about a week, the, one of the owners of the bar you know, called him up and said, hey, come get your machine. It's broken. It's not working. And so he was kind of disappointed thinking, okay, well, I guess people don't want to play these video games. And he went out there to see what was wrong with it and why it was broken. It turns out it wasn't broken at all. People had jammed so many quarters in there <laughs> that it was full and you couldn't get it to play. So he took out all the quarters and it worked just fine. And that's when, you know, really the video game industry as we know it today began. A lot of people don't know this, but he was the founder of Charles Entertainment Cheese, better known as Chuck E. Cheese. You knew that, right? Yeah, that's right. In fact, you know, I think that was a bigger financial success for him <laughs> than, than Atari, just in terms of right, because he sold Atari to Warner when it was relatively small, relatively compared to yeah, <laughs> and the fact that billion-dollar company. I think, yeah. And just a quick parenthesis, but you know, for for years, people speculated that he had buried millions of the E.T., I believe it was E.T., uh, the actual cassette, the actual uh, game in the New Mexico desert. And they, those who speculated were proven right a few years ago. They actually unburied them. You knew that, right? Yeah, there's a documentary. Correct. Uh, I forget the name of it now, but it's available on like Netflix and other places. Game Over? No, I, I can't remember if it's called Game Over. That was one documentary. But but yeah, so you, know, you see the video game industry go through these waves. And one of these waves was the Atari wave. And what happens within these waves is people create original games and then they say, hey, let's create games based on IP, intellectual property or movies, right? And so there was the Raiders of the Lost Ark game and the E.T. game, and they were trying to push the E.T. game out by Christmas that year. Prematurely, Even the yeah. developers were saying, prematurely, the developers were saying it's not ready. And, you know, it's really difficult to get the game mechanics right. Um, and, you know, Nolan Bushnell, uh, the founder of Atari, is famous for a phrase that he, that he used. He said, Make it easy to play, but hard to master. <laughs> so that's, you know, part of the key to making a good video game. And so, you know, this game was not that fun to play. And finding the fun is the hardest part. 
And so, yeah, there was that whole rumor. Turns out that if they buried them, they could write them off <laughs> exactly. you know, and take the loss or something. There's some accounting reason why. Rather than just giving them away, it was actually better for them to actually bury the inventory. Uh, uh, and, and yeah, in that documentary, they went back out there and found some. <laughs> I'm geeking out with you, by the way, about all of this, because some of the people who were pressured, so much pressure, the, the actual writers of those games did not earn that much money, and they felt so pressured that they decided, you know what, uh, we're going to create, because Atari wanted to have exclusivity of the actual games into that, but these guys, some of them left and created, you probably know this too, Activision, which, by the way, I think it was the best, best games that were out there for Atari. But we have to take a one-on-only break, but I want to say this before we take a break. When we come back, I want to discuss the Mandela effect, which we discuss here all the time. And also, I some you mentioned Jules Verne. I sometimes wonder if authors like Jules Verne, who talked about submarines and rockets in the 1800s, and Philip K. Dick, who also had futuristic thoughts, I wonder, Riz, if they get their information from somewhere, almost as if they were in communication with supernatural beings that knew our future but we'll take your answer on the other side how can people buy your books learn more about your work Chris? well my website is zenentrepreneur.com and it has links uh, for my books my podcast uh, and of course the books are available on Amazon and uh, you know, many local bookstores have it or you can always order one I always like to support local bookstores as well so uh, if you can you know, get it from a local bookstore uh, otherwise you can get it online easily help local bookstores folks i always say that is a species in extinction we need to support them don't go anywhere i'm here with rizwan frick a lot more when we come back this is mel hostelrick and you are listening to veritas don't go anywhere thank you for listening to the first part of this important veritas interview to listen to the rest and all of our material proceed to the member section or join the veritas family by subscribing Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know. <laughs>